Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 8, Exploring the Cosmos. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So this is the podcast where we bring in NASA experts, and in the case of today's episode, some super cool space fanatics to talk about everything NASA. So today we had quite a few special guests. We're talking about human space exploration with Glenn Lutz, John Connolly, and the band Styx. Glenn is the Deputy Director of the Exploration, Integration, and Science Directorate, or EISD, here at the Johnson Space Center. John is the head of NASA's Mars Study Capability Team under EISD, and Styx, well, Styx is a rock band. We talked to Tommy Shaw, who does guitar, vocals, and a lot of the writing, and Lawrence Gowen on vocals and keys, and also does some of the writing, too. Why is a rock band here at the NASA Johnson Space Center? Well, we have a lot of amazing things to show off, and sometimes people come over to check it out. We had a great discussion about exploring the cosmos, what human exploration missions will look like in the future, and why we send humans to uh, space in the first place. So with no further delay, let's go light speed to our talk with Mr. Glenn Lutz and Mr. John Connolly, as well as Mr. Tommy Shaw and Mr. Lawrence Gowen from Styx. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light shirt for the red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Okay, so um, how you guys liking the tour so far? <laughs> Do we it's have a, to leave? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it's it's a mind blower. Is what it is. It, yeah. it, it's a mind blower, and, and getting to meet people that uh, you know, do this every day is, is that's that's an honor and to that that alone you know but then seeing them with the machinery is I can barely form words to describe how overwhelming it is <laughs> what makes it so overwhelming though is it just is it just the history or is it just the amount of stuff maybe it's well it's kind of everything you know okay just from being a child and uh, from I, I still remember Sputnik and and so I followed it. Our family would always follow everything that went on, and, and uh, uh, up until modern times. Now, I mean, all through our lives, we've we've, we've watched it, and then now to do uh, we did a little story ourselves uh, about it, and you know, it involved some, you know, trying to get it right so it would be feasible, and now to see these these uh, the, the hardware that that we were just just sort of you know. Imagining, right? Uh, the, to see the Orion, uh, that that was amazing to him. But also to see the uh, control room that we'd all seen as a child. You know, uh, it's just just it really is. It's kind of overwhelming. Yeah, <laughs> mission control, right? A lot of history yeah. there. Like this, and like we were talking about it on the bus, right? Just you, you're just. It, you're sitting in a room and you're thinking about all the great things that happened here. You're talking about landing on your moon. You're talking about learning how to yeah. fly humans in space, all from this room. Yeah, the command center, the, the basically of, of of the greatest human history that's unfolded in our lifetime. So yeah. to be at that, the epicenter of that and and drink in, as, and as Tommy just pointed out, it's something we've had since we were children. Right. So you're you're in touch with your entire. You know, this might be overly philosophizing, but <laughs> but it's uh, I can't even speak. Overly philosophical. The, the overly philosophical. Thank you so much, Gary. <laughs> I needed that. It's, 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 that's what I mean. I missed, it's been a long day. Yeah. It's, it's it's this weightlessness condition. That I'm in. Uh, it's the no. You're you're in touch with all of that, and and the fact that you're so close to this. What is the greatest human endeavor? Uh, you know, in, in our lifetime and, and all that's uh, ensued because of it. Absolutely. So what, what, what was so exciting, I think, for, for us from our end is to show you not only the history of kind of what we've been doing here at the Johnson Space Center for so long, but also kind of what we're going to do, right? Like you said, we're showing you Orion, we're showing you exploration. We're already talking about Mars, uh, the moon, going beyond, going beyond the low Earth orbit, and we're kind of excited to show you that. So. I mean, just in terms of human exploration, just exploring, going out, seeing what what is beyond. Yeah. What do you think is that drive? Why do we have this drive to explore the explore space as humans? It's just it's human curiosity. I it's, think it's, so. What else is there? We're, you know, <laughs> we've done this. You know, what's what's out there? 
Yeah. And uh, and we keep finding out a little bit more, and I, I, I realize how serious the that quest is here. But for all those questions, there's all this detail and all this research and and wanting to get it right here so that it's right when you're out there. Yeah. Uh, just seeing all the manpower and all the uh, the research and development is kind of it's kind of mind-boggling. <laughs> it, it, it's what it's it's the most extreme example of how human beings have this built into our DNA. This this what else is the question? Like what else? Yeah. And as I'm walking through there, even looking at those all those various vehicles, it's like what else could you do with a vehicle that would that would work in a place that we don't know about yet? So just I guess that's really another thing that separates us from any other uh, form of uh, of life is that we're, we're driven in that way not not to stay safe but but to do things that are risky and hard I think I'm going to start quoting John Kennedy or, or Captain Kirk in a minute <laughs> anyway it, it's great to, to be close to that right? yeah, okay. yeah. Right. but I think maybe it's that human element right it's, it's that passion that really drives us and maybe it's kind of built in our DNA to want to explore maybe that's why we send humans humans can tell a story yeah. when they explore that I, th I don't think robots can. It's it's just it's that personal that the human element that we connect. Well, to. that's it. It's, what was it like? Yeah, and you can't. No matter how great your your uh, you know artificial intelligence is, it, it can never convey exactly what was it like. Exactly. And and speaking to Dan, uh, astronaut Dan uh, Burbank, uh, you know he was able to in very short order give you a sense of what that felt like. Yeah. Yeah. So just from his personal experience, you can't yeah. get that from data from a robot or something. You, I, you you feel what he's feeling, sort of. You're yeah, there. and when he describes some of what he had to go through to do it, I'm I'm glad I didn't have to go through. I like to just <laughs> vicariously enjoy it. Yeah. Well, what's I think what's fantastic is so so talking about human exploration. This is not something that is kind of brand new. We're just thinking about it. We've been thinking about it for a long time. In fact, we have people here at the Johnson Space Center dedicated to thinking about exploration. So I want to formally introduce two folks that we have with us today, uh, Glenn Lutz and John Connolly, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you are part of our exploration group in a sense, so talk a little bit about what you guys do. Alright, well we uh, are put in place to do just that, take us to those next steps. Mm -hmm. So John's in charge of putting out the plan and he's got a group that's making sure that everything that we need to go to Mars is thought about. There's mm -hmm. not a CVS or Walgreens on the way to stop and <laughs> pick up something. So these guys are in charge of putting up that whole plan together from number of rockets, how we're going to live on Mars. We've got guys in our group that are working on technology gaps. You know, what works today and what's what we need and there's a gap so we're closing them in testing and etc. Our group also has the scientists in it and so they're saying okay why? Mm -hmm. Why are we going? And where? Where are we going to go to make sure that we take the best advantage of where we're going? Yeah. yeah. So Tommy mentioned that you know as kids we all kind of watched the Apollo program, looked up in the sky, saw Sputnik, and I think that's what got people like Glenn and I here in the first place. You know, we were turned on by that and kind of made that our life's calling. Um, and and we've been um, we've been looking at how we get people beyond low Earth orbit, perhaps back to the moon, perhaps onto Mars. Uh, you know, as soon as we can. And that's uh, because we all think that uh, human exploration is a, a fundamental, um, a fundamental part of being human. Uh, you know, pushing outwards into the stars. And so, um, so we do have uh, we do have plans to do it. So that mission control that you saw, where we did all those great things uh, back years ago, um, the best is yet to come. <laughs> so I mean, Tommy and Lawrence, just from yeah. from your perspective, just seeing what you saw today, and maybe maybe these uh, you know some of the folks that have been talking to you today kind of got your mind jogging about Mars, and and you thought about Mars in the past just from from your writing and stuff like that. Um, so in terms of Mars, what do you think it is that is so intriguing? Why would we want to send humans there in your eyes? Well, it's been the the subject of. of all different kind of creative writing from from the Martian Chronicles, where it was literally little green men, to that the book that became the movie, uh, The Martian. Right. Uh, and so so it's really been and cartoons when you're growing up, the little green men and, and Mars and I, and and you can and it stands out. It's distinctive in the in the nighttime sky because it's red and yeah. you do get to see it a lot uh, and. And I guess it's relatively close compared to what else is out there. 
so, so there's all of those things from from fiction to fantasy and real research and all those things. We we're, were just fascinated by it. And um, the one thing that strikes me is just how is the the more we we see of things, how kind of small and insignificant we are compared to what we thought of when we were children. You know, the world just seems so magnificently large and. Uh, I used to just look up at the clouds and go, how far up is that? You know? <laughs> and now to see what you're planning on doing here, uh, it's, it's awesome. I know a lot of the astronauts, and I'm not sure if, if Dan Burbank brought it up kind of in his talk, but they have something called the overview effect. Hmm. Being up 250 miles, you have this view of the planet. You see this thin line right. uh, that's around the planet that's just protecting us, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have exactly what you're saying, that effect of, wow, we are so small. This this planet is not as big as I thought. We, yeah. We're all connected, but you know, there's so much more to this universe and to to the Earth, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Someone <laughs> said something about about being on Mars and looking out and not being able to find Earth, which yeah. one of yeah. us is Earth? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, it'll be the blue one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, you should be able to pick out Earth, just like we could pick out Mars in the sky. Earth will be a little brighter, a little bluer than all the other things out there. So, John, there have been images from the surface of Mars. Can we see the Earth? Is it blue? In the yes, sky? we can. All right. Uh, you can see the Earth from Mars. Uh, with uh, not much help, you could actually pick out the moon next to it. Oh, mm -hmm. wow. So, uh, with the so, naked eye. Yeah, so while you're, uh, well, it depends how good your eyes are. Well, from are. the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Inside uh, the <laughs> Inside. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, when you're on Mars, you'll be able to look at home. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, go, kind of bouncing off of Tommy's point of, 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 you know, it being in our mind to explore Mars, from a practical sense, from your guys' perspective in, in um, the exploration group here at the Johnson Space Center, what are we thinking about? Why, why Mars? Well, because it's next. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the next logical uh, place to send humans. It's okay. the most Earth-like of the planets. Uh, it's a place that has incredible scientific value. It may have harbored life in the past. It may harbor life still. Um, those are huge, huge questions. You know, those answer some of those big fundamental questions that we've had, like, are we alone in the universe? Yeah. And, um, and it's, it's attainable, I think. Maybe that's the biggest reason to go there is because we have the technology um, now or in the next few years that we could put together a mission and go there. Actually, I have a question for yeah. you. From what we know about Mars so far, is there any fossil record yet that where they've gone down and, and checked, well, what, here's what happened during this time, and, and have they seen anything? That, that so we've actually not really explored the, the Z dimension on Mars. Right. Okay, we've roved across you know, the surface, um, and one of the things that's on the scientists' plans is to get a drill to start drilling cores and oh. look at things like that. Probably the only fossil we may have seen uh, are some fossilized, what we thought at the time were fossilized bacteria. Back about 97, there were a few folks who, who thought they saw some, some remnants of, of bacteria, very, very small stuff. Right. Hmm. But, but we haven't really, we haven't really uh, drilled down to find any trilobites yet. Right. <laughs> so from a planning perspective, if you were if you were to plan, that's what you do. You think about planning a mission to Mars, right? What are some of the some of the key elements that are vital to make a, in a successful mission to go to Mars? So it's a, it's a pretty long list. So, <laughs> so you need a propulsion system that will uh, accelerate you out of the gravitational pull of Earth. You need a habitat that's reliable enough uh, to take you on a six month to twelve month trip to Mars. You need a landing system that'll take you through the Mars atmosphere and down to the down to the surface. Mm -hmm. You need all the surface uh, equipment, like the rovers that you guys were just in, and the spacesuits and the habitats and uh, and equipment to use Mars resources. And then you need a ride home. You need an ascent vehicle to get yourself back off the surface to the vehicle that's going to bring you home again. Mm -hmm. And so when you put all those together, there's a lot of piece parts that it takes to do that mission. Amazing. Yeah. Is that true for? Anywhere we would want to go, too, right? You would need sort of a similar profile? Similar. Okay. Uh, the moon is actually a little easier than Mars to get to. You don't have to deal with an atmosphere. Okay. And, uh, it's a lot closer, of course. Yeah, right helps. now, the, the moon's 250,000 miles away from us. Mars currently yeah, a is, lot closer is 250 here. million miles oh, wow. away. Yeah. Uh, it's at its furthest point from us right now. It's actually hidden behind the sun. So if you're on <laughs> Mars right now, we couldn't talk to you. Oh, couldn't at all because no. it gets the communication. Yeah, for for, uh, for a week or two, you're hidden behind the sun. We literally can't talk. To that you. long, a week or two? Yeah. 
Wow. So what's, uh, I'm guessing you're planning for that, right? So what would, what would be in a situation where that were the case, right? You have folks on Mars and they don't have communication with folks on Earth for a week. What, what are they doing? Um, Listen to sticks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they could be listening to music. Well, what was it in the Martian? What was the thing? It was um, it was Happy Days on the on the movie, yeah. but it was something else in the book. You guys have way better. So so our robotic uh, missions that are there now, we put them kind of into a safe mode for a couple weeks. Okay. We just don't have them do very much, and in about two weeks, we have them start broadcasting until we pick them up again. So the crew would probably have probably have about two weeks off, I'd say, where they don't where they probably wouldn't do very much. Do you think the, the actual shot to go to Mars will launch from the moon or from Earth? So ultimately everything starts from Earth. Uh, the question is what's the, right. the midpoint? Right. So where do you actually assemble vehicles and Stuff. things like that? Uh, energetically <clears throat> it actually makes more, more sense to assemble things in space rather than on the surface of the moon. So you could do that in lunar orbit. Right. Uh, you could do that in a, in a very high Earth orbit, uh, but in space makes the most sense. Uh, right at the edge of leaving the Earth's uh, sphere of influence, the, Earth's, the gravitational field of the Earth, then just takes a little kick from there to kick you out to Mars. Huh. But you don't want to you don't want to go into a gravity field like down to the lunar surface because then you have to fight your way out of that again. Oh, right. So what would you be building around the? Uh, well, uh, we're currently working on some plans for building, uh, for example, the transport that takes crews from. Uh, the vicinity of the Earth to, to Mars orbit. Huh. And so um, those are the kind of things you can't launch in one launch because they're too big. So you have to put them together somewhere. And uh, anywhere in cislunar space uh, kind of makes sense to do that. Okay, interesting. So uh, it seems like a, a coordinated mission, uh, venture with lots of advanced things. So, so you have all the hardware there. Yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna take a lot of launches uh, to put pieces together and uh, get those things sequenced out to Mars in a way that um, has what you need on Mars when you need it. And that it's up there and operational before we just say, okay guys, it's time to commit crew to go right. meet them. So right. you think there would ever be a time where uh, when you get all that worked out so you, it's, it's just second nature that this is how you, you, you do that. To, extend that to Mars so you're building things in Mars to go beyond there. I, I think if we figure out how to do it on Mars, um, <laughs> that'll be the next giant leap, <laughs> uh, if you will, uh, and that'll teach us a lot about uh, surviving without uh, being dependent on Earth, and I think that's the next big step. It goes so. back to your first comment that even as little kids, you see the two-year-old, the next thing that's just out of his reach. So if we get to Mars, that would be the next thing just out of our reach. So Tommy, kind of thinking about, you know, the next big step. If, if, if you know, thinking way out in the future, in your mind, what would kind of be some of the next places that would be really cool to see beyond Mars? Well, we have sort of a selfish... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know where you're going here. <laughs> <laughs> because, On the agenda. <laughs> yes, but, just bestowed upon the band's name, uh, the fifth moon uh, of Pluto, uh, and we've actually seen pictures of it, and it's not the greatest looking. <laughs> ah. if, if you were going to vacation anywhere in the area, yeah. you'd go to Pluto, and just maybe take some, some snaps. So, yeah, there. see it from yeah. from the surface. I, I don't know. I, I think with a little work, we could buff it up and make it a holiday destination. <laughs> it's a fixer-upper. There's no doubt. It's, it. it's, a, it's a handyman's dream. <laughs> it's about the size of downtown Chicago, by the way. Is it? Yeah. It's not too big. Yeah, it's not that Chicago's big. Chicago's nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking, a frozen <laughs> Chicago. And an unbiased ah. opinion. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that's well, the water. That's half the year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's come a long way since the, the World's Fair. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. I, another thing that... Back to where we started here, that yeah. blows my mind. I, when I keep thinking that, you know, that one of the airports we go through, I think it's St. Louis. Is that the one that's near Kitty Hawk or the, where the Wright brothers? Spirit of St. Louis. Yeah, Spirit of St. Louis. Is that it? Okay. So I'm thinking that human flight was, it's, it still boggles my mind. It's just over, just over 100 years ago. And now we're talking about assembling things in space that can reach, you know, the next planet. So that, that's. Uh, 
So that, back, back to me kind of being mind blown. Yeah, yeah, I think that's more of like the, the doing aspect, right? So like, you know, I, f I feel like we've been dreamers for so long, yeah. you know, dreaming about the cosmos and based on our limited knowledge, have come up with these fantastical realities of what it could be. But then once we realize that, you know, we can go into space and we have the technology to do it and you actually build it and do it, that's oh, that's why meeting guys like this is so yeah. amazing for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, so all right, going way back out to uh, to Pluto, you had the privilege of actually seeing New Horizons, right? When it when it uh, actually took photos of Pluto. We were invited. We happened to be in the D.C. area on the day that they did their flyby, and we were invited out, and we got to meet uh, uh, the principal investigator, Alan Stern, and all of his people. Uh, and they 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 were waiting there for us. I'll never forget they were there. They had a banner and they'd all kind of gathered in a room, kind of like this. Yeah. And they were welcoming us. We didn't know who they all. We'd never met them before. Sure. We knew we were at their mission control, but uh, so little by little we started getting introduced. It's just like guys like you who these who've done this amazing thing. And we realized this is all backwards. We need to have a banner for you. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was like the, you know, we're not worthy kind of thing. It was like they they won their Super Bowl. It was on the culmination of a nine-year mission. It was when they were get as these pictures were coming through. We were we were among the first people, uh, Earthlings, to see this uh, <laughs> to see this unfold. Actually, you just reminded me of something weird about that day that I remember. I remember us getting lost on the way to get into the plane. We couldn't find our way we there. We couldn't find our way there. And, and they spent the nine years getting to Pluto. <laughs> yeah. so we met the navigator who yeah. did the... Who actually flew it. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So how, how did he describe that ride? Was like the... I guess it's a pretty intricate, intricate ride to get all the way out there. The only thing I remember is that he said it was about... The craft itself was about the size of a, of a baby grand piano. Yeah. So directing that through... You know, to, uh, all the way, all that distance. You know, and it's, it's. I guess it's the farthest we've gone, right? So, uh, we've farthest we've ever sent anything, I suppose. Am I right? I think Voyagers. Well, Voyagers even further. Yeah. They got a head start. Though. Okay. Yeah, but, but it never took pictures of Pluto. Is all right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't want to put anything. I don't want to put Voyager down anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but, but to have accomplished that with something. Uh, oh, I remember the one question I asked that day was. Isn't it likely that it's going to be hit by something out there? Because I'm always thinking about the, you know, I was asking Dan about that as well, and one of the one of the scientists there explained to me that we it takes a long time before the the concept of of how vast space is finally sinks in that the likelihood of actually colliding with something is so minuscule like, mm -hmm. like, that. It's it's incredibly unlikely, and to to my mind, it seems like no, wouldn't that be happening all the time? And apparently, it doesn't happen very much at all. Even the uh, the asteroid yeah. belt, I think, is a good example, right? How far? How yeah. close are some of the closest things in the asteroid belt? Well, not as close as the Star Wars movies portray them. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Right, I'm right. thinking Han Solo right. so going through. So people yeah. think of you know asteroid yeah. belts and, and the Kuiper belt as being this sort of rock pile in space. Yes. Yeah. You know, literally millions of miles between little little specks of things. Yeah. yeah. So is it fair to say the stuff in the Kuiper Belt is even farther away? Like we're, to, we're Oh yeah. So that's that's Pluto. out yeah. beyond Pluto. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I've heard is that we could land on an asteroid, though. Like we were working, we are have that technology to make that happen. In fact, there's one of our ESA brethren across yeah. the pond. They uh, they did land on a comet. Oh, just recently. But we were working missions to put down on an asteroid and, and see what's there. Um, we've made some course directions and now more focused on Mars. Now. Are you talking about a human mission? No, it was a, a robotic mission to the asteroid oh, okay. to bring back the piece so mm -hmm. that we could study it here. Oh, got it. Around the moon. Okay, orbit. okay. You could land on an asteroid, but it has almost no gravity. Um, more like rendezvous. Yeah, it more, and uh, s most people think that the moons of Mars are captured asteroids, so Phobos and Deimos. Uh, you could go there, very little, very little gravity to hold you on the surface, though. So. Oh, so that oh. makes it a little easier to get to, so you don't have that gravity well that he was talking about oh. to try and extract yourself from. So. Right. 
Oh, okay. So you can actually just would you in in a scenario if you were to visit Phobos, right? If if uh, would you land on Phobos and then and then launch off again, or would you do sort of a orbital or anchor? Right? You could, anchor? Yeah, you could okay. do either. You would kind of dock with it. Yeah. Oh. Okay. You know, because it would just be kind of another thing floating in space. Uh, so you'd actually yeah. have to by landing, it's more like grabbing it. More yeah. like the boat in the pier uh, yeah. next to uh, yeah. it, tie on, do whatever exploration you could do, plant the flag. Okay. Very cool. So I know, um, kind of going back, um, you know, thinking about just exploring just different heavenly bodies, right? Talk, talking about Phobos, or, or even if you were to land on sticks, right? There's something that we like to call ISRU. That's one of the things that kind of we're looking at. In situ resource utilization, there right? There you go. It's using the stuff that's there to create more stuff. And I guess is the very layman way of saying that. Right. Yeah. So if, they, yeah. if it was resources. Um, living off the land. Is living off the land. There you go. Layman way there you go. Very cool. So where are okay. some of the best places where you can live off the land that we know of in the solar system? Well, Mars, Mars is probably the easiest. Mars has an atmosphere. I mean, uh -huh. carbon dioxide, you could easily crack carbon dioxide into oxygen and, and, uh, and carbon monoxide and use the oxygen to breathe or to make most of your rocket fuel. And in fact, we have an experiment flying in 2020 to Mars that's, uh, that's going to test exactly that. So, uh, so that if, and if that works, and it should, because it's very simple chemistry, uh, that means <laughs> that <on> we <laughs> you don't need to take everything with you anymore. Uh, when we went to the moon originally, we took everything we needed, every piece of food, every breath yeah. of oxygen, every ounce of water. Uh, if you find that kind of stuff on planets, that really changes the equation entirely because now you're, you're living off the land, you're living off the resources of those planets. And do you think it's possible to, to, to add nutrients and nitrogen and, and phosphorus or whatever it took to, to plant? Um, potatoes? Potatoes, <laughs> or Perhaps. beans, or corn, or whatever. Uh, I, yeah, you still need I, oxygen, though. Well, you? yeah, you need a lot of things. So Mars soil has some of the things you needed uh, need for growing things. You'd have to add nutrients and you'd have to wash a few of the, the other things out of right. the soil first. Uh, but yeah, you could, you could with enough additives, grow stuff in Mars soil. So you could get fuel and food. Yep. 3D printers, these, I, can, I haven't read enough about them, but is that part of what it is? You take the elements that are there and you're able to fabricate something that, that whatever is necessary next, or is that, where, where is that? Yeah, I think 3D printers are on the station today, so we can build something breaks. We don't have to wait and fly up apart. We can build it okay. apart. 3D printers for the fuel that he's talking about, I think fuel is more of a, a chemical element yeah. thing, so yeah. we wouldn't really print anything, but yeah. we would crack the... We are looking actually at 3D printers to take like the soil that you could find on yeah. Mars, and uh, you, know, you add some additives to it, and you... you uh, you use the soil to build habitats and things like that. It would be a big scale 3D printer. Mm -hmm. There's some NASA technology going on in some of our centers to look at that. So I think 3D printing is in its infancy and we haven't really even explored all the cool things we could do with it. Yeah. So you could make a metal alloy kind of a thing, maybe? Uh, sure. We, there are already metal 3D printers. Or um, even an earthen place to live in. Yeah. Yeah. Out of the soil yourself. That's you what I mean. Like yeah. that you're that you the elements are there to build it. So you could actually, you know, construct something by basically doing it's it's doing the mining and the and right. the manufacturing. And it helps in a lot of ways in that radiation's a big problem for the human being and right. the Earth's atmosphere protects us. We're leaving that behind oh, when right. we go to these other places. Yeah. So if we can build out of Earth like they used to do in Wyoming, Oklahoma, build the sod houses, so to speak. Uh, that helps from that perspective as well. Hmm. We have added Shield. protection than just the, the spherical dome that we would take with us. <laughs> and all the and the technology is almost there, or pretty much there, isn't it? For building houses, well, 3D printing. <laughs> well, for doing all those things, and if you get yourself on site. Uh, it's his job to make sure it is. <laughs> well, it, so, so it doesn't seem that yeah. outrageous. No, no, not at all. That that's within the realm of technologies that we could have in the time frames we're looking at to go to Mars. Is there any sort of I wish I hads that you guys are thinking of? I wish I had better propulsion. Because ah. right now, uh, as a as a species, we are stuck in the inner solar system mm -hmm. because the best we have is chemical propulsion. Um, you know, we've 
we've advanced technology a little bit since Apollo, but uh, and we have things like electric propulsion now, but um, we need some sort of different propulsion system, some sort of new physics to really travel amongst the stars or, or really to get out of the inner solar system. So yeah. that's my big I wish I had. <laughs> so with chemical propulsion, realistically, if you, if you designed a mission to go like way out in the edge of the solar system, how long is that mission profile? To go out to the edge of the solar system and back. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> Outside of, yeah, yeah, it, it, it would be a multi-generational yeah. mission. Wow. Um, and that's the problem with chemical propulsion. It just, uh, it's just not going to push you fast enough hmm. to get where you want to go. By the time you got there, another spacecraft would race past you with new technology. <laughs> right. Wouldn't it be yeah. nice where you could just yeah. flip a switch and just, I'm going light speed, and then bam. Well, can you speculate yeah. on what, what would exist other than chemical propulsion then? Um, well, so if... Uh, so right now we use, you know, we combine chemicals, we use, uh, we accelerate uh, ions to, uh, to push ourselves around. That all, that all requires us to have a fuel, okay, that we somehow accelerate off, out the back end of a rocket. The, um, the real, um, the next big step in physics would come if you find a way where you don't need fuel, that you could somehow create force without fuel. Right. And there are some uh, technology projects at NASA uh, going on right now that uh, are looking at that. If you're a big fan of Star Trek, that's kind of uh, what uh, Warp Drive is all about. Yeah. Um, Can you explain that? <laughs> that will we'll have to get another podcast. <laughs> I read something on uh, this astronomy site that I somehow linked to now on Facebook about some experimental propulsion thing where because. You're generally you're pushing off of something to, to go the other direction. There was something new that they were, I don't know if these plates or something that that somehow created propulsion. Yeah, that, and that's the new physics I'm talking about. We need something like that uh, to 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 get that working. And we do have an engineer here uh, in Houston who's working on um, uh, on a propulsion system like that. Um, they uh, some people call it the quantum thrusting. Yes. Uh, uh, it pushes, uh, and they don't really understand why it works, uh, but uh, it's been tried a couple places around the country. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, you know, it's at the point where you have to be very skeptical about, you know, what's going on. And uh, but if it works, it's it could change the whole equation uh, because mm -hmm. it doesn't need fuel. It's it's using different forces that somehow is pushing against something and moving you. <laughs> well, well, well the, Again, you know, another we, podcast. We hear about gravity assist, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so, I mean, is it something of that nature where there's a, some magnetic you know, exchange? Uh, no, or? it's a little different. Gravity assist is, it, it's, that's basically capturing the energy of a, of a planet like Earth or, or, uh, or Venus and taking a little bit of that planet's energy and, and turning it into your energy as you, as you fly yeah. by it. Yeah. And so what's like good about roller that is... Derby around the edge yeah, yeah, you get yeah. a little assist around the yeah. yeah but what's good about gravity assist and correct me if i'm wrong but it's a good bang for your buck you don't put a lot of energy into right. it and what you get out of that gravity assist is really big boost uh, right in fact most of the times you don't put any energy into oh, wow. it get captured uh, um yeah. but what you're doing is you're borrowing a little bit of energy from that planet's orbit um, that's incredible yeah so um kind of thinking about you know Going back to Mars for a second, so back to a, to a Mars mission. Um, what are some of the things that we have to be concerned about to put humans on the surface to make it, I guess, friendlier? Friendly. <laughs> Human friendly. What are the things we have to be concerned about? Um, well, Glenn could talk maybe a little bit about spacesuits and EVA, but yeah. I mean, from my uh, from my standpoint. Um, uh, getting people to the surface. So it, it's all a matter of um, changing velocities, first of all, right? You have to leave Earth. You, you have to ride a big rocket. You then have to change your velocity enough to throw you out towards Mars. Then you have to slow down once you get to Mars and make your way through the atmosphere and slow down enough so that by the time you get to the surface, your relative velocity is zero. So all, that, all, that, all those miracles of rocket propulsion and entry systems that have to happen um, keep me up at night. Okay. <laughs> then once you get to the surface, 
you need super reliable systems because <coughs> at Mars, you, like you said, you don't have a 7-Eleven next door. You don't have a handyman you could call. You don't. You can't send a, so a Soyuz or a Progress up uh, in a couple weeks. You know, with some new parts. So everything has to work for the duration of the time you're there, or you have to be able to fix it. And so, uh, so it's that uh, that high, super high reliability. Yeah, I think any endeavor across civilization, so logistics, logistics, logistics. I mean, you, they take on the Alps. They have a train full of donkeys behind them to get them there. We don't have that luxury, so we're going to have to have stuff that doesn't break. And we're going to have to have folks that, instead of the super pilot, he's the refrigerator repair guy. He can tear apart and put it back together and trust that it works because he's living off of that machine doing its job. Yeah. So everything that you have in the grocery, you know, oxygen, et cetera, you have to take with you or, or build or supply while you're there. But it takes good people to do that, right? You need folks that have kind of a variety of different disciplines that can actually work on this. Absolutely. So, uh, Tommy, Lawrence, and in your perspective, kind of what, what are some of the key folks that you would need to bring with you on a mission out to space? Well, you need someone who's, uh, I would think, uh, an engineer type. Definitely an engineer, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who... who you know, be skeptical and, and have solutions. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think you need somebody who's got a great imagination who can figure out how to get to the next, you know, the, what, what the thing is that you're trying to get to. A leader, yeah, in a way, I and, guess. And, and you, need, you need hands. You, need, you, know, you need helpers mm -hmm. you need, who are also, who have specialties, of, uh, special, uh, you know, uh, talents of their own. Because otherwise you're just a lonely, you know, you're doing it all yourself, you know. Uh, it's kind of like, it's, it's a lot like being in a band. Mm -hmm. You know, we all, we all support each other. Uh, otherwise we would just be one person out there with a microphone. And, and, and no matter how good you are, it's, there's limits to what you can do there. I think sticks would sound a little bit different with just one member. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the... Uh, you know, we talk about the machines that are necessary to do all this, but but again, talking to uh, astronaut Dan, the, yeah. uh, I, th I, th I think medical is is a huge necessity because uh, our bodies morph, you know, and and have to adapt, and and they do adapt and, and change in their, so that changes the whole equation of of what medically is required, you know, as the as the thing continues on, so I'd say. I'd, I'd say an engineer, a really good doctor, and you know probably a good drummer, bass player. <laughs> I, I would add a communicator, <laughs> you know, oh, someone yeah. who could talk back to the folks on Earth and, and describe in terms they uh, understand what they're experiencing. Mm. And the other thing is, you almost have to have two of everything or double training, because that doctor, if he's the guy that gets the problem, yeah, somebody else needs it. Right. You, you were telling me something great about the, or frightening actually, <laughs> about the dust on Mars affecting your thyroid. That's part of why my brain started moving toward that. Yeah, we, we've got to make sure we separate the bad actors from the human aspect of that. And so all the systems we're building, you saw the, the yeah. rover itself, you know, it, the suits purposely on the back so the dust doesn't come in with you. In Apollo, you know, we, we didn't have that right. separation. And, and, in those days, they used zippers to close up the suit, and dust and zippers don't like each other. Right. This just in. Um, and so the suit you saw didn't have any zippers. We've gone away from that now. Right. So, and everything's on the, on the back to separate. So, yeah, those are the little details that guys that work with John's teams are thinking about on every system. Yeah, and that's, it kind of helps that we've explored the moon, right? Because we didn't think about, you know, you're going to be walking on the surface, and then, oh, yeah, you're going to track all that dust back into back in the, the cockpit or what, you know wherever you're going to be flying from. Now we're designing, like you said, you mentioned, it's called the SEV, right? Space Exploration Vehicle. And it's designed where the suits go on the outside of the vehicle so you never step inside with the suit, right? So that's the general idea. And there's a bunch of different examples like that, right? Where you learn something and... Um, you know, some kind of cool new technology that we need to explore a different planet or something comes out of it. Is there anything else that comes that you can think of besides the suits, maybe? Well, we'll have um, robots to oh. assist us there. 
um, you know, one of the one of the things that about the human aspect of this flight is, you know, robots can go and and discover things, and we've got robots on Mars right now discovering stuff, but they really can't explore. They can't the human brain to, mm. to see things and communicate back to Earth what they're seeing, or if something doesn't go exactly the way it was supposed to, to react and do something different. So um, robots are going to be a big part of the mission and have them interact with us. And you guys saw some robots today that that will be along as an assist. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to make sure they do their job as well. So. <laughs> so the robots will be helping like a human, so for a mis uh, mission to Mars, right? How how many crew members would we probably, would probably be ideal to take on a mission to Mars? So. Um, my number is six. Six. Okay. okay. And we've done some, what we call crew skill mix studies over the years. Okay. And uh, it's like Glenn said, uh, you have to take a doctor, but you also have to take another person who's medically trained in case the doctor gets sick. You need engineers, you need geologists, you need, um, you need all the technical, if you add up all the technical specialists, you probably need 25 people. <laughs> and so then it's a matter of how can you cross train people to do, to be a, a doctor, pilot, geologist. <laughs> Okay. Wow. <clears throat> and, uh, and the best I've seen is that you can put all those specialties into about six people. Wow. So. That's amazing. I mean, some of the folks from the new astronaut class, right, I actually had the pleasure of talking to some of them. And we went through, uh, I talked with Ann Romer on one of the earlier podcast episodes, and we just went through all of the different um, folks that we brought on for the class of 2017. We have 12 new astronauts. Each of them does not just one thing. They do a bunch of different things. Yeah. For example, Woody Hoberg is an engineer in four different types of, he's like uh, computer science and electrical and aerospace and mechanical, like wow. he's, he's all of them. And then when you're talking about uh, a doctor pilot, Frank Rubio is a doctor pilot. He flew helicopters and then he did some skydiving but then also is a medical doctor by training. It's insane. So they're finding these folks that have all of these different specialties but when you're talking about, you know, scientists slash medical doctors slash you know, pilot, and then you, you have all of these different folks that are slash, slash, slash. It's amazing how you I, have to do I would that. recommend uh, having, uh, being able to play an instrument. <laughs> and, and, and many astronauts know how to. We, yeah. we, we, have, right. we have guitars yeah, exactly. and, and other things up in space right yeah. now. Yeah. Because music yeah. is really a, a part of life. And Absolutely. And it's one thing to have pre-recorded music, but to create music and, and make your own music would be part of it because you need joy. Yeah, absolutely. And you can't you not just working all the time. You, you need to have the joy of life. And you're right. Some of the uh, so right. You know, as we were saying, we have progressed from shuttle flights, which were a couple days, all the way up to now international space station flights, which are several months. Yeah. So they're up there for a long time, and a lot of them, like you say, they do bring instruments. We have yeah, Chris, you know, Hadfield. Chris Hadfield yeah. has his guitar, yeah, right? He's jam. We have folks yeah. bring yeah. flutes. Katie Coleman. Katie right? Coleman, right? right? Yeah. And then uh, I think Chell Lindgren brought a bagpipes, right? We made him practice yeah. way on the other side. <laughs> yeah. he, he wasn't invited back. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. Yeah, I think six is a good number. There's six members of Sticks as well, huh. and we are very good at the music part. And then, yeah, we, we do have a mechanical engineer. Well, we do. We have one. That's right. JY has. Uh, has a degree in rocket science. Really? <laughs> he does, actually. There yeah. you go. So, okay. and, and, you know, just like a band, a crew has to be a very cohesive group of people who can get along and, and uh, know how to um, solve their conflicts, you know, without uh, leaving the band. Right. Because there's no place to go up there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's constantly, you're adjusting to things. Yep. You know, and, and you're, a lot of times you're working on not enough sleep, uh, the weather doesn't cooperate with you. Uh, you're going into these habitats that are they're different every day and different configurations of how we're our dressing room sometimes yep. we're all in one room sometimes we're in, we have individual rooms so you have to be adaptable and flexible uh, and and know when you are fatigued and mm -hmm. and, uh, yep. and and know yourself and, and being in a band is uh, we're very fortunate to have, have the group that we have, because somehow we've we just get through it all, do what we need to do, adapt, and then and then at the end of the night we get to go play. And <laughs> that's that's really what it's all about. You're willing to go through whatever it takes to get there and to 
to get that uh, 75 or 90 or 100 minutes? Yeah, I, th I think that's, that is what being in a band is, is, is somewhat akin <clears throat> to what you're saying. Like you have to, you have to keep the, the focus has to remain on what's, what's bigger than any one individual. And to, to be able to, to navigate your way through the, you know, human conflict is part of life and it's part of discovery and it's part of the friction that, that brings new things about. But, you, but to do that over an extended period of time, as these people would be, uh, a crew of six would be faced with, they have to have those kinds of skills in addition to all of those other talents. Absolutely. So that's hard to, yeah. how do you, hard to pick those people. <laughs> It'll take a while to uh, go through that evaluation. We'll have lots of candidates to line up for those six spots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's gonna fundamentally be a different kind of uh, astronaut than than we've we've had before, just because of the length of the mission and right. and the self reliance and and you don't um, even communications. You know, you're right now. If we were to talk to someone on Mars, you're 22 light minutes away, one way. So if you were to uh, you know ask them, hey, can you guys hear me? You won't get an answer back until 44 minutes later. And so uh, even the uh, the dynamics of how we control a mission and how how we can help the people up there is going to be different. So it's going to be a much different uh, mission than anything we've ever done, you know, uh, even out to the moon. And what I think what's even, uh, you know, another important point is the fact that these guys are going to have to be not only, they're, they're not going to have to, they're going to have to have so many different types of expertise, but they're going to be together for such a long period of time. So they definitely have to get yeah. along pretty well. And, you know, in moments of crisis, they have to kind of work through different situations together and, you know, at the, at the drop of a hat, you know, one thing you're planning one way and then it's going to go a completely different way. Do you guys have any examples on stage where something just was not going according to plan every and, night, you, every and every night? night. <laughs> Absolutely. But you, got, you just have to push through, right? Yeah, and as a band, you just, you just pay attention to each other and you get, if it goes off the rails, which it does sometimes, you're all human, yeah. everybody just follows you back on it off the rails and then back on again yeah and uh and you don't let on <laughs> yeah there you go. There you go. yeah it's a, it's a two two-sided thing one is the, the the machinery has to work in order for you to play it properly sure but at the same time we're all focused on the entertainment of the audience as to what we're as to what we're doing on stage so that's more like the bigger picture is all constantly being readjusted to yeah and that that has to be some of that's done almost it's i mean I won't say it's telepathic, but it's just it's just a natural uh, reaction that you have to each member of the group because you really are playing together. You're trying to speak as one voice. Yeah, so. that cohesiveness is what we got to strive for in our crews. Yeah, and we'll have we'll have international crews, so we'll be mixing cultures as well. But that cohesiveness is what is going to make a successful or an unsuccessful well, that, band or a flight. And that was so evident today about the how. The United States and Russia have combined, and, and when they're sometimes at odds with each other, is when finally a better solution comes out of a situation like that. Yeah, we're that. practicing that with the International Space Station right now. Yeah. 12, 13 countries all participating, making that thing a success. Absolutely. The and Canada arm came like worked for. So, you know, one of the things is we, we train on the International Space Station all the time, and we're training for missions beyond and getting ourselves prepared. If anything goes wrong, we'll be prepared for it because we've practiced so many times. And I'm guessing it's the same for you guys, right? You've practiced so many times that if something goes wrong, drop of a hat, you can kind of, you know, that, that's how you're able to pull through on, how, um, all these nights. How about the night in Carmel earlier this year when the power completely went out? 100%. Really? Yeah. Yes. And fortunately, we were in a theater that kind of had a... It had a, a almost steeple-like church type thing. So although there were a couple of thousand people there, you could actually hear from the stage acoustically. So we basically, uh, this well, was we great. we were playing a song. I am playing acoustic. Oh, right. So we had in the wilderness. everything stopped. Yeah. But the drums were acoustic and my guitar was acoustic. So we just kept playing. Just, it uh, turned into an acoustic song. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I unplugged that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the weird thing is, the audience like they got totally into it, and then eventually they we, we found a piano down about four floors down. So the people on hand were lugged the piano up. It wasn't in great tune or anything, but we played for about another half hour before the 
We were out of hypergolic view. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's flexibility, adaptability. Yeah. There you go. And, and no refunds. Ones, those great. are the ones that you remember too. Yeah. Though it's like oh, yeah. when it rains or, yeah. or you have uh, some kind of natural thing that gets in the way of it. Or uh, those are the ones that you remember because you yeah. see, you really see what the band's made of. You know how you get through that, and, and your audience. You know they they're willing to if they're if they're willing to wait and stay through the weather, then, then we're certainly going to do it. Absolutely. Yeah, you mentioned earlier kind of the big picture of the, the entertainment of the audience. You know, Mars is really a destination, but getting there, we have to solve a lot of different problems that we hope to drive right back into life here on Earth, to make life on Earth even better for us as mankind right. by solving the problems that we go into this place. Mm -hmm. So Mars is a great draw because it really pushes us to solve some pretty tough problems. You know, water reclamation for third world countries. Right. We have to have pure water for this trip. So those those kind of spin-offs are part of what we do as well in the big picture. Yeah, for sure. Those are kind of to your point, Lawrence, where you know you have all this technology and you have to worry about that, but then ultimately the, the goal yeah. The goal for us as Mars, the goal for you guys, is the entertainment of the audience. So everything has to work, but if it doesn't, you still have to achieve that goal. And that's yeah. where you, you know, you're bringing a piano from four floors under to, to, to still achieve that goal. And it's, it's working, you yeah. know. But uh, I guess it, for space, it's just a teeny bit, teeny bit harder, I think. Mm -hmm. I think so. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no extra piano. <laughs> no, exactly. That's one of the hardest parts for me is, you know, like when you were, to your point, uh, John, when you were saying for Apollo missions, we brought everything with us, right? No spare parts. Uh, I think a perfect example is, is Apollo 13, where things, you know, were going wrong. We didn't have spare parts to fix things, but we still fixed them with the stuff we had on board, right? You know, you're, you're talking about uh, engineers getting together in mission control and just laying out all the stuff that they knew was in the capsule and saying, all right, how can we, how can we fix this issue? We actually had something very recently, too, where we had uh, um, we were doing a spacewalk a uh, couple, couple months ago, right? And uh, we were supposed to put a shield on the outside of one of the modules, well, the shield uh, got inadvertently lost. So there was four shields that we were supposed to put up, one, two, three, and then there's this exposed part on, 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 on one side, and we needed to cover it up. Well, it just so happened that during the same spacewalk, we took another cover off of another part of the, of the spacecraft. So engineers took that cover and said, okay, how can we fit this cover onto this part? It was like, it was kind of, you know, reminiscent of that time where you had to throw everything. All right, what do we have? What can we do? And they figured it out. They actually figured out how to lay this cover over that exposed part. Insane. And that's the, I, I guess, our grand piano moment, right? <laughs> that's going to be a great day for the crew, though, too. Oh, it really was. For everybody. Oh, yeah. Very satisfying. that problem. Yeah. I think what's even better is during that, uh, spacewalk. I think we got everything done, right? I think oh, yeah. all the missions were even with that setback. We still we still accomplished the mission. We got everything done we needed to. It's pretty crazy, and that's you know we, that's the stuff we got to prepare for. You and that's the stuff you're thinking about, right? So, you know what what happens? How many how many situations, John, are you thinking? Okay, if this goes wrong, this is what we're gonna do. How many times do you think that every day? <laughs> so we will we, yeah. will we will yeah. take some spares with us. Okay, we're not yeah. just gonna have the box of stuff we have. Yeah, yeah. We know that. Um, we know that over time some things break mm -hmm. and so uh, what, what we're looking at is you know what things are most likely to break and we'll we'll take spares for those and figure out ways to fix the, the stuff that, that goes wrong so um, yeah you can't assume everything's gonna work just right mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of the uh, a lot of the planning we do is figuring out what tools you know what spares what maintenance equipment to take with us to fix stuff that's gonna go wrong because you know, that's, that's all we got, you know, no piano in the basement. Yeah, he has a term called dissimilar redundancy, so electric guitar and an acoustic guitar, yeah, that's both right. on stage with you. Yeah. Um, and so we have something that builds oxygen and something else that builds oxygen over here in case this fails. And, you know, there's, at a certain point you're going to have a lot of hardware on Mars, so it stands to reason that you could do, you could salvage parts. Yeah. Oh, sure. And, yeah, and and that's why very important to you know use the same size screws for everything, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. So. Wow, amazing. So um, before we wrap up, Lawrence, Tommy, do you have any sort of just just talking about exploring the solar system and, and all these different things? Do you have any sort of 
floating questions that um, you know just sort of popped up just based on the tour and this kind of this conversation. Anything that you were wondering, or or maybe some thoughts about stuff that you were wondering, but but have a better understanding of now. Well, what about you know you always see suspended animation or like the the, the is there any any reality to that concept? It makes for good. <clears throat> Entertaining. Yeah, that's. I'm an engineer. That's way out of my <laughs> yeah. expertise. Yeah, that, we'll have to bring a doctor in for that. No, I don't think we're we're doing much in those those fields that I know of anyway. Yeah, that is that is. Yeah. It's a good tool to get you places when you're telling a story. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but for, you know, for for the missions that you guys are planning for, you're talking. You know, we're. How how will they get through those couple of months? Because what you're talking about, I think the shortest time to get to Mars would be seven months, right? Maybe closer to nine. What are they going to be doing in that time to sort of to sort of fill it? Um, so that's a great question. Um, so they're going to be exercising like crazy <laughs> because you want to arrive at Mars as healthy as you could possibly yeah. be. Uh, they're going to be uh, you know keeping the systems running, uh, but they're going to be doing as much science as they can on the way too. Now, most of the science will probably be um, science on themselves, science on the humans, um, because we've never been in that deep space condition for that long before. Um, there's also, um, you know, we were we've actually been talking about them doing astronomy along, along the way. Okay. And so there, 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 there will be real science that they accomplish, not just trying to stay healthy. Do we have a good understanding of how how you know the sky, I guess, will look on that transit to Mars? Will will you be able to see a lot of different stars? Yeah. All right. <laughs> In fact, that's all you'll be able to see. All right. Cool. Because uh, I guess the because the Earth is going to become a little blue dot very quickly, and yeah. Mars will still be our little red dot out yeah. the other window. The sun's getting smaller and smaller. Yeah. The, wow. you know, the sun is just a, kind of a bigger star in the sky, and everything else is just stars. Amazing. So. Well, we have to think about weight, right? That's one of the things we have to think about. How much stuff can we bring with us on that journey to Mars? Just enough. <laughs> That's how much we can bring. So I'm guessing telescopes is part of that, just enough. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah in space, in the human space travel, uh, mass is almost equal to cost, right? So, yeah. for, you know, for every bit of mass you add, you're adding cost because you have to boost it into space and get it to where you need to, to get it. So uh, everything we do is, is all about saving mass. In the Apollo missions, they actually sawed the, the handle off of toothbrushes to save mass. Wow. Um, because huh. mass was so so precious back then. Unbelievable. They figured you could you could you could use a toothbrush that has a little one inch handle on it as good as you can use a toothbrush that has a six inch handle on it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That, that's check in luggage right there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a little bit stricter restrictions than the than the TSA, I think, for space flight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any more dying questions before we before we wrap up? I don't have anything. Per I don't know if I have anything pertinent to, to either of you guys because I think the thing that impressed me today again was when Dan was talking about how much exercise. Like you're saying, you have, you have to arrive there healthy. It just got me thinking a lot about how much we our bodies change when we're away from this planet and over such a short period of time and that gets me thinking about well, what what will humanity look like how what will we be like once we've spent a few years somewhere else like we could actually physically change us you know incredibly one of the good things i heard is apparently your wrinkles go away <laughs> <laughs> Just, yeah, but right. but, but yeah. I mean, as a species, I mean, it actually will change us. Yeah, I think if we, if we just, if there's people who actually are born and live on Mars uh, within a few generations, yeah, you will be changed because you're living in a lower gravity environment your entire life, and um, yeah, sure. Might even I mean, develop immunities to some of the things that right. you were talking about earlier, Glenn, but, you know, certain things, I don't know, I'm, I'm just... A spitball in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I had a chance, I'll talk to my great 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 grandson one yeah, day and I'll ask good. him. Yeah, <laughs> good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, 
Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, both talk to you on a part of this podcast, but also have you here today and kind of show you everything that we're doing. And it, it was it's just so exciting to see how engaged you were and to, you know, it was, it, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. And of course, uh, John and Glenn, thanks for talking about the real science that we're doing here at the Johnson Space Center. So uh, thank uh, you for having us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. It's unforgettable. <laughs>